Time for Swordplay. Bart Spencer, senior pastor of Lighthouse Baptist Church in Holland, Michigan, encouraged members of his church to catch COVID, even coughing on them, so that they could, quote, get it over with. Man, that is messed up. If they wanted to get sick, then all they had to do was wait for the vaccine. There it is. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am uh, Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, where we offer a double-edged perspective on Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3. That's right. 1 Peter chapter 3, working our way through the letter of 1 Peter. And we've covered a lot of ground, and now we are continuing the idea of submission, started in chapter 2, now going into chapter 3. So chapter 2 talked about submission to government authorities, submission from slaves to masters, and now we have submission from husbands, uh, I mean from wives to husbands. And so uh, first question, verse 1, Nick, is the instruction really to just wives and husbands, or should it be to women and men in a household? Yeah, the uh, adjective here, own, um, be subject, wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Uh, and that, that seems to indicate that each woman is to, or at least has, her own man. It indicates that this is focused on husbands and wives specifically, not women and men generally, although I'm sure there are principles that fall out at the bottom of this that relate to that. But um, that's what I see here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, the Greek gune, which could be wife or woman, and the Greek honor could be husband or man. I agree with your conclusion, though. I mean, although I suppose the argument could be made that if a woman was unmarried, then she would still likely have her own man at home, like a father or a brother who was head of the house. Uh, I think about Mary and Martha and John's gospel, how it seems that their brother Lazarus was the man of the house. However, because of context... Peter definitely seems to have marriage in mind because he'll use the, the marriage of Abraham and Sarah in just a moment as an example. So, Nick, verse 1 still, was Peter, does Peter compare wives then to slaves? You know, the, the focus on husbands and wives, that indicates this is a continuation of what is typically classified as household code. Um, and... Uh, Paul does this in like Ephesians 5 and 6, and now here's Peter. And in the instruction, this kind of instruction was aimed at everyone in the household, husbands, wives, slaves, and although not addressed here, children. Again, you see that in Ephesians 6 uh, where Paul is doing the household code discussion there. Uh, and in addition, uh, it needs to be kept in mind that Christian slaves, Christian wives, Christian husbands – they are all now on equal footing at the foot of the cross. Uh, so that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Well, and yet the Christian wife might be married to an ungodly husband, just right. like the Christian slave may have been under the employ of an ungodly master. And that's why Peter says to submit to them in both instances so that the wife may win her husband who remains disobedient to the word, the word which I think here is a reference to Jesus. So I think Peter does see some overlap between the situation of a believing wife 
and a believing slave in the first century, though not exactly equivalent. Uh, this, this passage actually reminds me of a Christian woman I met in India uh, about 10 years ago who had an unbelieving spouse. So she had become uh, a Christian, a believer. She was part of the church there in Mumbai. And her husband, though, uh, was not. You know, he still had images on the walls of uh, some of the more popular Hindu gods. And so, you know, his, his culture, his family, his history, his belief was Hindu, sort of a nominal Hindu, but still a Hindu nonetheless. And so he would not um, go to church with her and he would not read the Bible, uh, but he wasn't mean about it. He just kept giving excuses. So he would say things like, well, uh, how do you, how do you, my wife, have time to read the Bible to go to church? I mean, there are certainly uh, many things around the house that need to be done. And uh, for me myself, I mean, I especially don't have time because uh, I have to wake up early in the morning and do lots of things here before I go to work. And so uh, I just I just don't have that kind of free time. And so what the wife did is she would get up a couple hours before the husband would get up and she would take care of all of the chores, all of the housework so that when he got up, the only thing he had to do was get dressed sit down, eat the breakfast that she made for him. And right next to the breakfast plate, she would op- she had an open Bible, right? It was translated into Hindi. And so he all he had to do was come to the table, sit down and eat his food and look at the open Bible in front of him. <laughs> and that's it. That's all he had to do. And so she actually made his life easier in her efforts to get him interested in reading the Bible. And eventually over time, through her extra efforts that he saw her making, it got him thinking, why is, why is my wife consistently being the best wife I've ever seen <laughs> in my whole life? Hmm. And it kind of touched his heart, and he began to soften up and to read what she was laying out before him every morning. And he did. Not at that time when we were there, but a few years later, he did become a Christian. And so she, with her behavior, converted him. He won her over, or she won him over. So that's part of what I think about in this particular passage. And so that's, that's I think, a touching story, a beautiful story. But what if the husband was not so gentle? Nick, what if the husband was actually mean and abusive? Is Peter saying that a woman should stay with an abusive husband? The notion of a husband hating or neglecting his wife is as strange as hating or neglecting himself. This is Paul's argument in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes and uh, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And while it's true that some people, male or female, there are some people who engage in self-mutilation, like cutting and things like that, we readily identify that kind of behavior is abnormal. And in a similar fashion, a husband who hits his wife or abuses her verbally or emotionally is also abnormal. Tragically, in this fallen world, there are those foolish husbands who demonstrate the folly of their own self-hatred by abusing their wives. The wife's obligation in such a scenario is to still remain faithful to the Lord 
live the Christian life excellently, and holiness. And all of these are things which can be done away from her husband, perhaps through uh, separation. Uh, You know, one passage that I think is neglected in our discussions about abusive husbands and a wife's option in a situation like that is Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. Uh, There we read about a man, if uh, he reduces or diminishes the food of his wife, her clothing, or her marital rights, if he does... Uh, if, if, he, if he's not taking care of those three needs, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She is free to go. Uh, when, at least, and you know, we can talk about maybe uh, sexual abuse, but at least withholding food and withholding clothing, those are forms of abuse. And in such a case, the law made provision. The wife was allowed to go out from her husband. That sounds like divorce to me. She was free to go out. And so such a text, by the way, I believe is in Paul's mind when he writes what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but that's a discussion for another time. Uh, I remember, um, I don't know, Alex, when when uh, when you took the intro to Christian counseling at SIBA, did you guys, did you guys have uh, Gerald Jackson come in? Nope. Oh, uh, well, um, <laughs> we did. <laughs> and, we say, um, who is he? He's, he was a preacher in Lubbock at the time, uh, and uh, he would talk about – one thing I remember him saying was, you know, it, if you encounter a woman who's in, in an abusive situation where her husband is hitting on her, don't you send her back into that situation. That is foolish, right? Right. Um, uh, if anything, if you want a teacher or instructor in something – you know, uh, if she says, well, you know, he loves me. Well, then, sweetheart, love him back and love him back more. Love him back with a gun. You know, it's like, man, Drill Jackson, <laughs> don't play around, man. <laughs> love him back with a gun. But, uh, I mean, I think that's wise counsel. Don't send them back into a dangerous situation like that. Again, she can still honor the Lord and be faithful and holy away from an abusive husband. Right. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, you know, just in the first century, as Peter's writing to, just as a Christian slave might be abused by his master, so too a Christian wife might be abused by her husband. Uh, Like the slave in the ancient world, there were limited options for recourse. We spoke of that last time. A Roman court would have little room for helping a woman with an abusive husband. Uh, A Jewish woman might appeal to the Sanhedrin under the law of Moses. You made reference to a few passages that make exceptions. But that institution of the Sanhedrin will end very shortly in the Jewish-Roman War when Peter writes in the mid-60s. The best bet for an abused wife would be to return to her parents or find shelter with siblings. At least in the case of a woman, their extended family would likely be in a position to help the woman And that family could also appeal to the abusive husband to change or to leave either way. The Christian wife, however, though, as you mentioned, as I'm mentioning now, should not stay with a dangerous and abusive husband. Though often, uh, as you mentioned, they do, right? But he loves me. And that has more to do with emotional problems than it does with biblical interpretation. So we're not 
using the Bible to say that women should submit to an abusive husband. Um, all of this goes to show, I think, that the ideal relationship between any two humans is when both people are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, both in word and in deed. The Christian slave might find immense happiness and respect for their Christian master. Likewise, a Christian wife might find immense happiness and respect from their Christian husband. And I just want to point out that people should notice how Christ changes everything. So here's the thing about the instruction to women here then and their submission and what kind of beauty they have. Do you think from this passage, Nick, Christian women are prohibited from, as Peter says, braiding the hair or wearing jewelry in verse 3? Yeah, so uh, braiding of hair, and this uh, this may be an echo of like Isaiah three twenty four, where it talks about well set hair. Uh, braiding of hair, they, they were hairstyles which were intricate and elaborate ways of fixing one's hair for attracting attention uh, and perhaps admiration. Putting on gold jewelry, the bracelets, armlets, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, perhaps of Isaiah three nineteen through twenty one. Uh, that may also have to do with the hair as well. In antiquity, gold plates were sometimes added, interwoven into the hair. Uh, the clothing you wear, that may be uh, similar to what Paul talks about over in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, expensive clothes, Paul says over there. Here's the thing. True beauty, as Peter's talking about here, true beauty is not garbed in finery, and holiness is not garbed in that either. The beauty of holiness is not seen in externals. Where does the notion that dressing up is synonymous with holiness, where does that notion come from? In fact, we are told, the Lord will take away the finery, says Isaiah in Isaiah 3, verse 19. I, I, I stumbled across an article written by Alexander Campbell, uh, way back when, in his day, Campbell actually bemoaned the fact that Christians wore what he called finery when coming into the presence of holy God. In the article, it's entitled Worshiping Assemblies, number one, Campbell writes, to see worshipers appear in church as at a marriage feast, a presidential levy, a theater, a dance, either in dress, manners, or general demeanor, strikes all persons of reflection as snow in summer, or a plaudit, that is applause, in the midst of a prayer. We frequent the houses of prayer and the places of worship with all our finery upon us, as though our synagogues were theaters of fashion, and the ladies' book, rather than the New Testament, was the guide of our devotions. Wow! Campbell throwing the smack down in his day, and also in our day, I believe, because... <laughs> Uh, siblings, it is not about clothing. That is Peter's point in these verses. It's about the inward, hidden person of the heart. Always has been, by the way. Uh, so that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? I agree. Uh, coming together as Christians is not about what we wear. Although I do think that good hygiene is still under the umbrella of loving one another. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there are some churches today which do not allow women to braid their hair or wear jewelry. Again, it, it's very few. But this is because of this passage and the one like it in First Timothy. There is an argument, I think, to be made here as well from the language that a not-but proposition is being made in this pas uh, passage. So beauty should not be emphasized in external things, but 
but eternal things. Just like if I said one's treasure should not be on earth, but in heaven, right? Like on the Sermon on the Mount. That isn't a prohibition on having treasure, but it's on where one places value in how they use their treasure. Similarly, the value of a woman's beauty should not be on the external adornments, but the internal person. Not that she couldn't have any external adornments at all. It's not a prohibition, but it's a redirection of emphasis and placement of value. Well, Nick, verse 4 then, it says that the wife is to have a gentle and quiet spirit. What does that mean? Well, so uh, one thing, if we could kind of back off and see the big picture here. I, I believe this verse attests to the fact that humans are compound creatures with a both physical body and a spiritual soul. And, and God has always been concerned, it would seem, more about the condition of our inner spiritual lives than with external form. And this is a principle which is traceable throughout the Bible, that God is the one who looks upon and examines the heart. First uh, Kings eight thirty nine, First Samuel sixteen seven, First Chronicles twenty eight verse nine, Second Chronicles six verse thirty, Acts one twenty four, Hebrews four thirteen, Revelation two twenty three. Go back and you can look those up, O diligent listener. But it it's this principle throughout Scripture that ties all together. God is concerned about the inner spirit, uh, the inner soul, and so when Peter here writes about the gentle and quiet spirit. This is this is Christ-like. It, it does not insist on its own way. It is content with a peaceful existence. Attempting to find beauty in physical outward adornment, that is fleeting, that is futile. However, heavenly beauty discovered in the gentle and quiet spirit. This is eternal. One other note here, quietness, it is a typical admonishment for women in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Quietness is typically linked with submission, and here it is the godly disposition of a woman seeking to win her husband to the faith, right? That's where it goes back to verse 1, that he may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is... Uh, attractive to men, and more importantly, it's admirable before God. That seems to be the argument Peter is making here. What do you see here, Alex? Yeah, so a a wife or a woman is to have a gentle and quiet spirit. I think the temptation today, especially for a woman who has been hurt by the important men in their lives, would be to see quietness as meaning don't speak or you have no voice. Those are lies of the devil. A woman's voice matters to her husband, as the voice of the church matters to Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, even when we aren't sure about Christ's divine providence or his reasons for his actions or allowances, the church still loves and follows her husband, right? The church still follows Christ. So too, uh, though the Christian husband, you know, is far from perfect, or maybe in this case with Peter, uh, he's referring to a man who's not even a Christian at all, still the Christian wife loves and follows her husband. So the question is then, when is it okay to, to push back, to disobey one's husband? And I would apply the same rules for government submission. The government uh, cannot make you do something that is immoral or evil. 
And the government cannot stop you from doing what is good or moral. In the same way, the husband cannot make the wife do anything that is evil or immoral. And the husband cannot stop the wife from performing what is good and moral. But those are all within this conversation of submission that Peter brings up with the government, slaves, marriage, and uh, in this context of how we treat one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let's, let's break it down a little bit more, Nick. What exactly does it mean then for wives to be submissive? If we talked about what it, what it does not mean, then what does it mean, positively speaking? You know, there's a John Piper's written a brief little book called "This Momentary Marriage," um, and uh, I've I've read it several times. I think it's a, a very good book, and um, uh, on the on the subject of marriage. In the in one of the chapters, he he has an extended discussion about submission, and he identifies several misconceptions about what submission is not. That are he's he's basing on what Peter says here in First Peter three. Uh, verses 1 through 6. Uh, for example, submission does not mean agreeing with your husband on everything, because verse 1, that indicates that this this wife, uh, this woman, she is a Christian, but her husband, he is not. Right. They disagree about Christ, they disagree about salvation, the church, and the rest. He has one set of ideals, she has another. So they disagree about these very important things. So submission, it can't mean that you agree with your husband on everything. Also, submission does not mean that you do not think of yourself uh, or, or don't, don't think for yourself. You don't check your brain at the wedding ceremony or at the, the altar, right? This Christian wife in First Peter 3, she has heard the gospel, she has thought about it, she has seen the beauty and the worth of following Christ and has made a decision based on that. And submission also does not mean abandoning every effort to change your husband. In fact, the point of this passage is to explain how this Christian wife might win her husband to Christ. That is how, through her conduct, she might get him to change his mind on the most important matter of all, and that is Christ. Okay, so if that's stating it negatively, and and Piper has several more points, and uh, you can get the book and read it for yourself, but uh, if... If that's what submission is not, then what is it positively? Well, properly defining the term will enable us to understand what submission is. And it had a, a twofold aspect. One was a military aspect, and one was a non-military aspect. The military aspect had to do with uh, the arrangement of the various uh, uh, soldiers in military fashion under the commander of a leader. In other words, in, in the military... You have generals and admirals, uh, admirals, and under them you had command. Under them you have commanders and colonels. Under them you have lieutenants and sergeants. Under them you have privates, airmen, seamen, and that's the case in all the military branches. Uh, each one is vital, and each serves a purpose and a role. And that's that's a that's a, an illustration of submission from a military aspect. Uh, those of lower rank are in submission to those of higher rank. And then there was also the non-military idea in uh, submission. And the non-military idea of submission had to do with a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. It is a voluntary yielding in love. And we do this with Christ 
And now Peter and other New Testament writers, they bind this on uh, the woman. In fact, uh, this is how Piper defines submission. I like it. I borrow it from him. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Uh, and that's a definition, I believe, that is pulled directly from not just First Peter 3, Ephesians chapter 5 as well, uh, and the things Paul says there, but the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Uh, well, I think that's well said. I agree with that last <laughs> <laughs> that last statement, too. Just you affirm and honor your husband's leadership. You help him carry his leadership through with your own gifts. And you are not, uh, you are not the... Man, what's the word I'm looking for? You're not the accessory, right? The wife is not the accessory of the husband. You know, he could, he could take her or leave her, right? Uh, whatever whatever it benefits him. It's like, no, no, he is the, she is the the indispensable partner, uh, the helpmate, as Eve is described for Adam. And they become one flesh, and it has a mystery to it, not just a physical element, but a spiritual element. And so it is... Uh, it's it's one thing to 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 be a slave, right? And here's where we draw a distinction between slaves and wives, uh, because the slave, you know, doesn't finish the the thought of the master's sentence, right? But the wife can. The wife and the husband can anticipate each other's thoughts. And there's, I think, we're missing out on the beauty of the ideal relationship between husband and wife, because we're fighting so much against uh, the modern. I think attacks on traditional marriage and family and the attack on marriage and family will probably be the final battle that the devil carries out against the church. But moving on to verse six, Nick, how, how would wives uh, be frightened into doing what is right? Um, And I can start if you want me to, it's, it's a, it's a curious phrase in here in verse six. Uh, Let me, Read it so I don't mess it up. Here you go. He says, you are her children, children of Sarah, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So it is a curious phrase. It sounds like Peter is referring to a woman who is frightened into submission by perhaps an abusive husband, as opposed to just submitting because it's the right thing to do. There certainly doesn't ring the... um, the harmony of a a complementarian viewpoint when Peter says, you know, it shouldn't be out of fear. Uh, This, this wouldn't mean that a woman should stay with an abusive husband, as we've already mentioned, but it does mean that submission should be the default, I think, for the godly wife, uh, not only when they are brought to the point of fear uh, for their safety. And so what do you think, Nick? Yeah, so I, I prefer my uh, ESV reading here, and, and it is a marginal reading in the New American Standard. Um, but if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. So there's a, a, a separation there. She does good and does not fear. And it reminds me of Proverbs thirty-one twenty-five. Uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She doesn't fear the future, in other words. And as a daughter of Sarah, uh, this Christian woman does not fear the future. She fights the anxiety that tomorrow threatens 
with the hope of God's promises today. And so uh, that's, uh, that's what I see going on in, in this verse. Yeah, it, it's kind of a strange wording uh, in the English, at least when it comes out. Well, here's another thing in verse 6. Peter does use Abraham and Sarah as an example here. Do you think Abraham and Sarah represent the ideal marriage? Yeah, I don't know that if Peter is pointing to an ideal marriage as much as he's identifying this specific example from the Old Testament, which shows deep the deep reverence of a woman of God for her husband, even in a moment when no one is looking except for God. Uh, you go back to uh, the the passage that uh, Peter is pulling this from over in Genesis 18, and and Sarah. In the specific example is when she called Abraham Lord. That's the specific case from Genesis 18 and verse 12. Uh, And she speaks positively. She speaks respectfully of her husband. And it's just, that's that's her default. That's her natural way of thinking about and talking about, her normal way of talking about her husband. And Sarah's obedience, which is paralleled here, I think, with the the submission uh, idea, but her obedience to Abraham is when she, in an off-the-cuff comment speaking to herself when no one else but God hears, she calls him Lord. And this is, it seems to be, the imperishable beauty of the hidden heart that Peter is talking about here. So that's what I see going on here with uh, Peter pulling from Genesis 18, talking about Sarah, Abraham, calling him Lord. Um, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, the hidden person of the heart. You know, that's a beautiful picture, and I think it's practical as well. If the hidden heart of a wife holds bitterness and scorn towards her husband just for the simple fact that he is the leader, well, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so you have to first examine and be careful uh, of the inside person, what's inside of you. And yeah, I'm glad that we're not saying, neither is Peter, that Abraham and Sarah is the ideal marriage because there was uh, certainly a lot of messed up things there. So <laughs> I think we do that sometimes. We we lift up some of these Old Testament faithful and assume that that means uh, they have given us the, the best example in all areas of life when clearly, clearly that is not the case. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, especially when it comes to marriage and parenthood. Man, most of these people were terrible parents, just Mm. really bad. Uh, Also bad spouses at uh, many times. But that's not what being faithful is about. It's not about perfect. It's about these moments of trust in Yahweh, Creator God, and now in Jesus Christ, who is uh, the incarnation of Yahweh. So back to marriage, men and women, Peter says for husbands to honor their wife as the weaker vessel. So, boy, that might be triggering for some people. Uh, Nick, what in what way is a woman weaker? Yeah, many many modern women and, and even probably some modern Christian women, they cringe at the statement made by Peter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's, we can blame Peter as, you know, backward uh, first century, unenlightened. Really, who's in back of this is is the Holy Spirit. So uh, the the question then is, well, how does God intend for us to understand weaker vessel here? How does the Creator of male and female expect us to understand weaker vessel here? 
And certainly God is creator. He would know how women are constituted. And, and here's the thing. Uh, from Genesis to Maps, there is nothing in the Bible that hints at women being weaker intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find that human constitution, how we are made, it, it's regularly compared to a clay pot or a clay vessel. Uh, Acts 9, verse 15. Romans 9, verses 22, 23. So, then what is in view must be sheer physicality. Uh, generally, men are physically stronger than women. I know we can find examples of exceptions, you know, like some Olympic weightlifter who can probably deadlift more than me and Alex combined, but... <laughs> Generally speaking, and, and this seems to be the idea here with the weaker vessel, men are physically stronger than women. And yet, the instruction is the woman is to be shown greater honor for that weakness, showing honor to the woman as weaker vessel. That's the instruction here that I think often gets overlooked because people's hair catches on fire when they hear, weaker vessel, ah! right? No, uh, th- th- there's a profound teaching here. So... Uh, that's what I see. Alex, uh, what do you think about this weaker vessel business? No, I think that's right. It's a statement of the physical difference in our bodies, generally speaking, of course. The weakness mentioned is not a negative attribute, uh, but a positive attribute in terms of beauty and value. That's what we're discussing here is the beauty and value of a woman, especially the inner woman. So just like when one handles with the utmost gentleness of care, the heirloom dishes or the fine crystal, uh, this is the disposition, Peter says, a husband should have towards his wife. And that disposition not only prevents abuse, but it also forms uh, love and Christlikeness within the husband. And so we don't uh, go around smashing our fine crystal or heirloom dishes just because it's not as strong as the uh, ones we've carved out of wood or stone. It's actually because of its fineness, of its weakness, that it has a beauty to it. And that is something I think is missing today just in, in our general outlook on life. We almost always use weakness as a negative attribute, as something to be disdained and to be avoided, and you are not to be weak in any way. And yet, we have missed out on so many places where weakness is elevated and made beautiful and valuable. And just think about what Paul says about Christ, how he being in the very form of God poured himself out to become in the likeness of man, right? So how do you, how do you go from being the most powerful uh, on, in all of cre- in all, above creation, the creator of all things, the most powerful, right, the omnipotent one, and yet you put on a created body and put on a body of weakness. And do we call, uh, uh, do we downplay Christ for that? No, we lift him up for that. We honor, we admire that. Many, many things, uh, I think, in life that we consider weak have been too quickly uh, also labeled as, therefore, worth less than something that is stronger. And that is a mistake. It's a, it's a detrimental mistake, especially to the outlook of the, of the woman and how she sees herself. She doesn't have to be strong in order to be valuable and beautiful. And that's, I think, uh, part of the part of the uh, discussion here. 
So, Nick, verse 7, there is a stark warning for the husband. If he does not treat the wife correctly, uh, says the prayers will be hindered. So how is the husband's prayers hindered then in verse 7? What, what does that mean? Yeah, so three obligations that the husband has is to live with his wife in an understanding way, show honor to her as the weaker vessel, and recognize that she is a co-heir of the grace of life. Should a husband fail to fulfill those obligations that are commanded here in this verse, his spiritual life will be stymied. God's ears are closed to the hard-hearted husband who does not honor his wife. It must also be said that God's ears are closed to the willful wife who refuses to submit herself to her husband. Serious spiritual consequences result from not obeying God's will. Uh, Black and Black, in their commentary on First uh, Peter, talk about, the, uh, they, they say, the idea that one's relationship to God may be hindered by one's relationship to others is a repeated theme in Scripture. And this is a principle which is at the heart of the teaching of Christ. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about if your brother has any, if you if you are offering an, offering an offering at the altar and remember that your brother has ought against you, you got to go and make it right before you come back and worship God. Um, so that's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 22-23, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, 14 and 15, also that same chapter, Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. Uh, and so this is, a, again, a, a prevalent teaching, uh, a prevalent principle in the teaching of Christ. How we treat others matters to God, and this is especially true in the marriage relationship. How we treat our spouses matters to God. If we abuse or disrespect our spouse, our prayer life will be interrupted. No husband should expect an effective prayer life if he does not honor his wife and live with her in an understanding way. And no wife should expect an effective prayer life if she does not submit herself to her husband and respect him. It's like when, uh, I don't know that, I guess they still do it on cell phones, but back in the day, if you dial the number wrong, the operator would come on the line and say, sorry, but your call cannot be completed at this time. And that's kind of what heaven says when your interpersonal relationships are all a mess. Sorry, your prayer cannot be heard at this time. Maybe it is interpersonal conflict. Maybe it's internal uh, internal emotional turmoil so that you are not clear-headed when you are praying. Peter's going to talk about that in chapter 4, verse 7. Whatever it is, go make things right. Reconcile, repent, do what the Lord told you to do as a spouse. So, uh, that seems to be what uh, is at the heart of what Peter's talking about here for me. What do you think, Alex? I will say that uh, I do want to emphasize that it seems the first step of action lies on the shoulders of the husband as leader, right? Mm. And so if you're going to be a leader, then lead. That is the point. Uh, it was Adam who was told that man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Who leaves the father and mother? Man, who takes the first step towards his wife as leader? Man. It was Christ who first loved us and gave himself up for us that he might sanctify the church as his bride. Who loved us for first? You know, Christ or the church? Well, Christ. In fact, it was because of that love that he was able to bring about the marriage between Christ and the church. It is the husband who must first honor his wife so as to lead her and his household in prayer and godliness. So once the husband 
first does what is right, it is then appropriate for the woman. It is then it is the appropriate response then for the woman to follow her man. That is the ideal scenario, anyway. You know, they're obviously Peter speaking to unideal circumstances. You might have a husband who is disobedient to the word. You still submit, but it's for the Lord's sake. It's for conscience sake it's for righteousness sake it's not for the husband's sake but the husband nevertheless if he wants to obey the word and listen to god he is tasked with making the first step so husbands think about that next time you're arguing with the wife who is the one who is supposed to uh be the first to get off the crazy train it's should be the husband uh so let, let that sink in. The responsibility of leadership, guess what, falls on the shoulders of the leader. So husbands, be a leader, be a man, take the first step, do what is right. Lead your woman, lead your household. So Nick, we have instructions here then for everyone. And part of it in verse 8 says, be kind-hearted. What does it mean to be kind-hearted? Yeah, kind-hearted or tender-hearted. Uh, that's my English Standard Version here. Uh, the Greek term, fun to say, eusplachnoi, right? Um, <laughs> this is a same word that Paul uses over in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And this is the idea that uh, something, it touches your heart, the distress, the affliction that you see in others, that should touch a Christian's heart. Uh, there's a, an old hymn that uh, is sung from time to time about... Uh, does Jesus care? Uh, the, the questions of those verses are answered by the chorus. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my pain. And so this is Christ-like, to be uh, tender-hearted. And this and uh, the other characteristics listed here in, in verse 8, these are the backbone of healthy relationships among brothers and sisters. It's the backbone for a healthy church. Where these are absent, division, bitterness, hard-heartedness is going to abound. When these characteristics are absent from the church, repayment of evil rears its ugly, sinful head. And so, no, we, we need to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. We need a tender heart, and we need a humble mind. All those things are, are vital. Uh, so that's what I see here with kind-hearted. What do you think uh, about kind-heartedness, Alex? Yeah, this is a fun word study. Usplaknoi, usplaknos. Uh, in the Greek, it has the literal meaning of having strong bowels. <laughs> well, it was common in the ancient Near East to talk of one's emotions as being located in the stomach. And we even do the same thing today. We say, you know, someone has butterflies in their stomach. Uh, even under the right conditions of discomfort, we'll say, I can't stomach it, right? It's usually not in reference to food, but some emotional situation. So the word translated here is compassionate or kind-hearted. It shows us how we must have a strong stomach for one another. Sometimes that's in tenderness that touches on the positive feelings for each other. But it also points towards the patient endurance that we show for each other especially when we don't naturally get along, which, of course, uh, is exaggerated during times of pressure and stress and trial, which Peter's audience obviously has some of that going on. So, Nick, in verse 9, what is the blessing that we inherit and the blessing that we give? Yeah, literally, uh, in the original, blessing, it's a uh, present participle, um, 
And so my English Standard Version, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It's, uh, it's not merely enough not to repay evil. We must invest goodness after the model of Christ. Uh, isn't that what's it? I mean, there were a lot of people before Christ who were on the scene saying, hey, don't do to other people what you don't want done to you, the, kind of the, the silver rule. But it was Christ <laughs> That's right. who That's first right. delineated the golden rule, do unto others, the positive way, right? Uh, active, do unto others as you want them to do to you. Uh, and so Christians, they have been called to emulate Christ in returning uh, uh, evil uh, for good. The purpose of this is to obtain a blessing. Most commentators say the blessing is eternal life, since the text that Peter is going to quote uh, in verses 10 through 12 mentions life. The blessing, though, it is ambiguous, and no doubt it includes present blessings in this life. God blesses godly behavior now and in the life to come. And so Peter says, bless uh, when reviled, we bless, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12. And this is not the tepid, usually sarcastic, God bless, or Jesus loves you, right? It's just so plastic and, and phony. Can we imagine Peter or Paul just kind of throwing out that kind of fake God bless, right? Uh, can you imagine Peter or Paul spitting out through gritted teeth, Jesus loves you, right? No, this is, this is calling upon God to show those who have injured or insulted us his grace and his favor, and to really mean it, and, and bless not merely in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Let your actions bless those who revile you and persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. This is profoundly personal. So uh, that's, that's what I see here with this blessing and inheritance and all that. What, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, God has shown us many blessings. Of course, it remains vague in here, uh, I think intentionally, uh, because God's blessings to us have been both spiritual and physical in broad ways. And I think the point of Peter here is that we're supposed to pass those blessings on to one another so that we might become a blessing, that we might become conduits through which God acts in this world. Uh, the patient slave who endures under harsh treatment, he finds favor, grace, blessing from God. It's chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Uh, the godly husband who treats his wife well, he finds favor in his prayer life as opposed to a stumbled and, and handicapped prayer life. Uh, it's verse 7, as we mentioned, and it is on those who um, do good, it says in verse 12 in a moment, that the the eyes of God are towards those who do good. His ears attend to their prayer. And so the, the blessings that we inherit is whatever God gives us, and we in turn give those blessings to others. It's supposed to really be this cycle, right? And the more we focus on ourselves, what I can get, the more it actually clogs uh, the channel through which God wants to use us as a blessing to the world. So the more the more you let God work through you as opposed to just for you, then the more Christ-likeness can be formed. You can inherit the blessing and be a blessing. That's the point. We're supposed to inherit blessings so that we can give a blessing. 
Uh, let's see here. Nick versus 14 and 17. What does it mean to suffer for the sake of righteousness? Yeah, so um, if we should suffer, uh, says verse uh, 14, if that should be God's will uh, there in verse 17, if uh, we should, this is, um, it's the, the rare optative mood uh, in the original language. It's a, a form used if the possibility was unlikely, and yet even if such should happen or even is happening in Asia Minor, uh, Peter is saying those who experience such persecution are blessed. Uh, so very interesting phrasing of it by Peter, but uh, that's a bit of what I see here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, this is the third time now that Peter reminds the Christian for whose sake they willingly suffer. Uh, it's for the Lord's sake that they suffer, chapter 2, verse 13. It's for conscience sake that they suffer, chapter 2, verse 19. And here it is for righteousness sake that they suffer, uh, suffer in chapter 3, verse 14. And Jesus said it first, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, uh, Matthew five ten. We may suffer for doing what is right. We may suffer for refusing to do what is wrong. And I think it's important to remember those two things. Nick, what is the parallel between Isaiah chapter 8 and 1 Peter chapter 3 here in verses 14 and 15? Yeah, so uh, verse 14 ends with, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And this is uh, quoted from Isaiah 8 verse 12. The context in Isaiah is preparation for the coming Assyrian invasion. Here, the context is assurance during and preparation for persecution. Literally, Peter writes, do not fear what they fear. Uh, and also, though different, Peter no doubt has in mind the words of Christ, let not your hearts be troubled. Fearless and courageous living is what Peter calls these Christians to. Christians are not to fear impending circumstances or threatening opponents. And then in verse 15, Peter continues the quote, uh, from Isaiah 8, but he does make a significant change. Whereas in Isaiah, the one who was to be revered as holy was Yahweh, that same reverence is now to be rendered to Christ, who is the Lord, even Yahweh, because Christ is God. And so Peter has no problem equating uh, Christ with Yahweh. It's a typical move in the New Testament, by the way. Christ deserves the same honor and reverence as Yahweh. No doubt, Peter intends for his readers to let him be your fear and let him be your dread, as Isaiah 8 verse 13 concludes. Peter wants his readers to fear Christ and to fear no other. How? By having and holding the Holy One in their hearts. Uh, so uh, that's a bit of what I see here with the use of Isaiah 8 uh, so, what, well, yeah. for having and holding the Holy One in their hearts, why don't you tell us what that means? I think it says, uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. What is that? Yeah, I see four factors for sanctifying Christ as holy in our hearts. One is 
the holiness factor. Unless he has changed our life first, we hamstring any and perhaps every effort we may attempt in reaching out to anyone. That's why Christ is set apart in your hearts. The heart is the source of our behavior. Peter's already talked about that in 1 verse 22 and earlier in 3 verse 4, uh, that uh, gentle, quiet spirit. Everything we do comes from the heart. The inner self cannot be separated from the outward person. And this is why we must be holy as he is holy inside and out, something Peter's talked about also back in chapter 1. And then second is, uh, I call it the, the preparation factor. Always be prepared. When we would engage anyone, whether it's a, a person from the church down the street or a non-believer, we had better always be prepared to make a defense. Christianity is not a blind leap as some would style it. Instead, it is based on historical facts, evidence which demands a verdict, a la Josh McDowell. He's got a book by that title. Uh, So we need to arm ourselves with these historical facts, which bolster our faith. And, And by the way, these facts are contained in our New Testaments. The historical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as well as the emergence of the first century church, are all part of this. Uh, Third, I call it the obvious factor. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Anyone, everyone who asks. It should be so obvious that we are a Christian, that people are asking about our faith. One author calls this permission evangelism. People want to know what makes you different. And if you live differently than the world, which is a key tenet of the Christian faith, by the way, something Peter is going to key in on, especially when we get to chapter 4, They think it's strange you don't rush into the same flood of dissipation. We are to live differently in the world, and people will take notice. Ask yourself this. If being a Christian were against the law, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If not, something is wrong. And then the last factor here is uh, the attitude factor. Do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and fear is uh, literally what it says there. There's no need to beat someone to death with a doctrine stick. Most people, though... Respond very well when we approach them with the mentality that we're all trying to identify God's truth, and it's contained in the Bible, which is God's Word. And together, let's see if we can discover it together. That's gentleness, not compromising, because again, we're pointing them back to the Bible, to the source of truth. But also understand that this person is coming to the study, to the conversation, with a lot of presuppositions. In other words, Time, culture, environment, these have all affected the way this person views the world. You need to respect that, but also don't be afraid to challenge them with what the scriptures say. So uh, that's what I see here in verse 15. This is a a key um, verse for apologetics because always be prepared to make a defense. Uh, That's your Greek term there, apologia. Um, Yeah, apologia. And uh, we get our English word apologetics from it. Not that we apologize, but we make a reasoned defense for the faith. So uh, anything you want to toss in here, Alex? Well, you mentioned the connection between Isaiah 8 and this passage where, yeah, that same sanctity and reverence given to Yahweh of the Old Testament is now found in Jesus as well because they are one. And the ways in which we can hold Christ uh, as sanctified as Lord in our heart, you you talked about in the way we live our holy lives, uh, the way we prepare to give a defense with evidence, the way in which it is uh, obvious who, who we are and what we 
what we do. And of course, the gentleness and fear, the attitude which we have. And so you've laid that out, I think, very well. And it sort of comes to this uh, point and now which says you you give that after sanctity of Christ in your Lord as Lord in your heart, you give that defense for the hope that is in you. Hmm. And so what is that hope and how do we defend it? Yeah, Paul talks about how Christ in us, that's the hope of glory, Colossians one twenty seven, And uh, I think that's related to Peter's overarching argument here throughout about the, the anticipation of resurrection and eternal life. So that's... Uh, and that goes back to uh, 1 verse 3, which kind of started the whole ball rolling. But uh, that's what I see here about uh, about our hope. Uh, what do you see uh, here about our hope, and, and how do we defend it? Yeah, I want to spend another moment on the resurrection, because I think the hope Peter has in mind is the hope of the resurrection. Uh, Peter has mentioned this several times. We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You just mentioned that, chapter 1 verse 3. He also says, our faith and hope are in God because he is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. It's chapter 1, verse 21. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have the hope of our inheritance, which I think is the new body, when we are raised from the dead, chapter 1, verse 4. And we'll see at the end of this chapter, in chapter 3, that our baptism now saves us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, chapter 3, verse 21. So everything centers around this hope, which is the hope of the resurrection, of Christ's resurrection and our own resurrection to follow. And it was at the resurrection, the point being made there, that Paul, the apostle, lost most of his audience at the end of his speech in Athens on Mars Hill. It's in Acts 17. But it does say, some believed some were convinced. Now, the ways in which we defend our hope, that is the resurrection, I think it would certainly include all of the things that you mentioned uh, in how we go about sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. I think right now I see the most persuasive defense probably being what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 8. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. That's quite profound. The joy of believing in Christ is real and it's objective. It's not just subjective and it's detectable by observations. People are seeing the joy and love which you have for someone you never saw and you do not see right now. And there's also this intuition that that joy is is true. It's an actual real joy. And when the world notices our joy in Christ, while we at the same time love our fellow believer and endure suffering, I think that is the greatest defense of our hope, the hope for Jesus's resurrection and our own resurrection. Well, Nick, we jump down to verse 21. And we'll explain why in a few moments. But we jump now down to verse 21 about baptism. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is right after he talks about Noah and the flood. So how does baptism correspond to Noah and the flood? Yeah, so one thing that uh, that kind of rises to the surface here is that Peter affirms the historical nature of the Noah account back in uh, Genesis. 
chapter six, seven, eight, uh, nine, as well as a bit about Noah, but um, um, and specifically uh, seven, verse thirteen, and also verse twenty-three, uh, which I believe is about the uh, the number of people that were uh, saved. But two facts emerge. Two facts uh, from the example of Noah. Few were saved. That's the first thing. Few. And then, second, the salvation came through water. And uh, as Noah and his family were saved from physical death through water, so Christians are saved from eternal death through immersion in water. The example of Noah was selected by Peter, even by the Holy Spirit, uh, to encourage his readers, and even us, to faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Noah's family was an oppressed minority, surrounded by hostile unbelievers. The thoughts of people's hearts in Noah's day was only on evil continually. And that was awful. And Peter draws somewhat of a parallel uh, to his readers. Peter's readers were an oppressed minority that were surrounded by hostile unbelievers. And so are most Christians today, the world over. They are an oppressed minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. Yet Noah was faithful to the mission of God, and so Peter exhorts his readers to faithfulness to God's mission by calling them to set Christ apart in their hearts and being willing to give an answer for their inward hope. And it's the same call for us today. Even though we may be an oppressed minority surrounded by unbelievers, we still are to be faithful to the mission of God. In Noah's day, judgment was soon to come and did come in the flood. And so for Peter's readers... Judgment was soon to come and would come, and he talks about that in chapter 4, verse 5, also verse 17. God was present with Noah by the Spirit of Christ, uh, and so God would be with Peter's readers, empowering them in their work, and so they should not fear. These parallels in like manner should encourage our hearts. Though we are the minority, the few, God is faithful. He will save us, and final judgment will come. Uh, so that's those, that's some of the connective tissue I see here in regards to baptism and knowing the flood. Alex, what do you see? Yes, yeah, the more connections are uh, just as God washed away the sinful world so that it might be made new again, so too in baptism does God wash away all of our sins so that we might be made new again. Uh, the renewed earth, though, was not complete because the curses from the Garden of Eden had not been lifted. And so, too, the Christian has a renewed soul, but the body that we still bear dies as the lingering effects of the garden remain in our flesh. But just, um, just like we'll receive new bodies, so, too, will there be a new heaven and earth. And there's the same thing mentioned in Romans 8, verses uh, 18 through 25, where it says, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time as not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, here's the connection between the renewing of the creation and the renewing of us, our bodies, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And what's that? The redemption of our body. So Paul connects the same finished product of the renewed earth with our renewed bodies. For in hope, there's the connection to the what's our hope. It's the resurrection. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees, but we hope for what we do not see. We per- with perseverance, we, we, we wait eagerly for it. So our hope is the resurrection, our resurrection body. And there are parallels again there between that and what happened to the earth after the flood. So Nick, clarify for us then, is baptism essential for salvation? Baptism now saves us. Yeah. So a couple surprises. One is it is surprising the hermeneutical gymnastics that some authors will go to in order to make Peter not say this. But then the other surprise (laughs) is the number of commentators who recognize what the text is actually saying. Caffin in the pulpit commentary writes, Baptism brings us into a state of salvation, into covenant with God. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Peter, writes, The basis of their assurance is their baptism, for in baptism they have appealed to God to give them a good conscience on the basis of the crucified and risen work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Gill, good Baptist that he was, saw the inescapable conclusion of this text when he wrote, The sense seems plainly this, that then is baptism rightly performed and its end answered when a person, conscious to himself of its being an ordinance of Christ and out of his duty to submit to it, does do so upon profession of his faith in Christ and obedience to his command and with a view to his glory, in doing which he discharges a good conscience towards God and being thus performed, it saves. Albert Barnes, good Presbyterian that he was, likewise recognized the immediate meaning of this text when he wrote, The sense is that baptism, including all that is properly meant by baptism as a religious rite, that is, baptism administered in connection with true repentance and true faith in the Lord Jesus, and when it is properly a symbol of the washing or putting away of sin and of the renewing influence of the Holy Spirit and an act of Undeserved dedication to God now saves us, Barnes goes on to call baptism, the indispensable condition of salvation. So, I mean, that's good for commentators, right? But what does Peter actually say? Baptism now saves you, but this is no mere ceremony. It is not a bath to remove dirt from the body, uh, which is an interesting, uh, the word there, sarkos, which is usually translated flesh, but uh, it indicates the true meaning here of baptisma. It's an immersion, since a few drops sprinkled would not cleanse the body. Rather, while an outward action is being performed, which is immersion, there's an inward attitude which must be maintained, which is faith. So it is an appeal to God for a good conscience, as my English standard, or It can also be understood as the pledge of a clear conscience to God. So, is baptism a petition or a promise? Commentators note how difficult the language of this verse is, and perhaps this was intentionally done by Peter, so that both petition and promise come into view. On the one hand, when one is baptized, he or she is asking God for a good conscience, something only he can give by the blood of Christ, see Hebrews 9, verse 14, and 10, verse 22. In baptism, we are pleading with, petitioning God to forgive us our sins, make us clean by the blood of Jesus, wash us inwardly of sins so that we are whiter than snow, and put us in right relationship with him. 
At the same time, when a person is baptized, he or she is pledging to maintain a good conscience before God through a life of service to him. In baptism, we are promising God that we will walk with him, renounce the world, the flesh, the devil, dedicate ourselves to him fully, and consecrate our hearts to service in his kingdom. Both of these fit well with Peter's overall theme. And the resurrection of Christ, that is the power behind baptism. Everything related to our living hope is connected to Christ's resurrection. Again, it goes all the way back to 1 and verse 3. And this includes the good conscience. It includes the deliverance from sins that one receives from God through baptism. That's the power of baptism. Not that we're somehow working or anything. It's what God does. So, (sighs) all right, uh, that's... uh, that's a lengthy explanation of my answer to is baptism essential. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, baptism is essential for salvation. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but works. No, it is God who does the work in our baptism. It is God who cleanses us in our baptism. Uh, think of Noah like Peter wants you to. Noah did not save himself from the flood, but he did obey God, and he put himself into the one place that God said would be for salvation, which was the ark. So now Jesus saves us like the ark when we are baptized. And so there are many important things going on here, and of course this is a big debate now, right? Maybe not for the first millennia and a half, but uh, (laughs) now there's a debate. And so we're going to try to make some connective, uh, some connections here uh, between what Peter has already talked about so far and also more things about baptism. So first, Nick, what do you think is the connection between Peter's teaching on submission and one's conscience in verse 21? It's an appeal for a good conscience, right, or the pledge of a good conscience? Right. I, I think uh – what I see is in in baptism, we submit our conscience to God. Uh, that that's part of it. Again, that's a that's one reading there of an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a pledge of a good conscience to God, and so we submit our conscience to God. That's what I see. What do you think? Yeah, I like what you said about the intentionally uh, ambiguous use of uh, the the Greek in this text about how it's both an appeal. And a pledge. So baptism is an appeal for a clean conscience uh, and a pledge to keep a good conscience. So since the Christian has received a good conscience in baptism while at the same time promising to keep that conscience clean, Peter already uses that as a presupposition when he refers to that uh, promise when we consider our roles and relationships to government and household. So when we do something for conscience sake, it's just like, well, what presupposes that we're doing something for conscience sake? Well, the fact that we now have a good conscience. And how did we get that good conscience? And that's in baptism. And what do we do now with that good conscience? We pledge to keep it clean, to do what is right for Christ's sake, for conscience sake, for righteousness sake. Now, Nick, tell me, why does this verse about baptism then, right? Baptism now saves you. That is very hard to get around some interpretive gymnastics need to be done to even try it but let's say one accepts that right baptism does now save you why does this mean water baptism as opposed to just spiritual baptism yeah whoa 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 slow your rolls wingley right (laughs) uh ulrich zwingley swiss reformer he was uh, uh i don't know if he was necessarily the first he may have been the first but uh 
he, he spiritualized baptism um, throughout the New Testament uh, in the 16th century. But here's the thing, Christian baptism through the early centuries was, was always with water. Immersion in water was the first and primary method from the first century. And even when like pouring and sprinkling found their way into the mix, again, water was still the means. And only with Zwingli's allegorizing some 1,500 years after the fact, only then came the spiritualization of baptism. When Peter, or any other New Testament writer, writes about baptism, immersion is literally what it should be translated, foremost in their mind is immersion in water. Other forms, like baptism with the Holy Spirit, those are typically described or categorized as such. Uh, You have baptism with, and then you have uh, the... uh, the accompanying, what, uh, adjective, noun, whatever it is, they'll tell you what they mean. Otherwise, if it's just baptism, it uniformly has to do with uh, immersion in water. Uh, That's what I see. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, and as you were saying that, I don't even think it's so much that Zwingli spiritualized baptism, because baptism's already spiritual. It's that Zwingli de-physicalized baptism, Mm. de-physicalized. He took the physical out of it and said there's only the spiritual going on when it's always been both and i think every baptism in the new testament as you look through it is with water Uh, and there are those few moments where you see there was a holy spirit uh immersion that happened and it seems to point specifically to two events right acts 2 and acts 10 first for the jew then for the gentile but all the uh examples of conversion you see that they are baptized and they're baptized with actual water so I think about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Why would the Ethiopian eunuch be so excited to find water in the middle of the desert? Shouldn't Philip have just told him that that's not necessary because the Holy Spirit will immerse you without water? Shouldn't the eunuch just wait to give his testimony to the queen of Ethiopia through, uh, through the, the ritual testimony of water baptism? Nope. The eunuch understood exactly what baptism was and is, and so he went down into the water for himself to receive salvation, and he received the joy of his salvation, came up, was joyful, excited, thankful, didn't know where Philip went. He kind of disappeared, but he went on rejoicing nonetheless. So what else do we have here? Yeah, verse 22, still talking about Jesus. And after the resurrection, verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Alex, what is significant about being at the right hand of God? Yeah, this is in conjunction with Christ's resurrection. So because he was resurrected and consequently raised to the position of authority, uh, which is the right hand of God, now he is able to forgive us of all our sins. And thus, you have what Peter says. Again, Peter Working from what Peter says, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when it says, in the name of Jesus Christ, it's the Greek epitoonomati, which it's a preposition, epi, on top of, on the basis of someone's name. And that is an appeal to an authority. If I say, stop in the name of the law, it's an appeal to the power and authority of the law to make you cease what you are doing. Otherwise, you're breaking the law. So this is what we're doing. We're appealing to 
on top of the name of Jesus Christ, his authority for our forgiveness, which is a little different than Matthew 28, where he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of there is actually ace to onama, ace being the preposition into, and that's actually a phrase reserved for the transferring of property, like I sell you my car and I write on the deed, uh, this transfers my car into the name of Nick Perez. And so that's what happens in baptism as well. We get transferred into the possession of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, into their name. But we appeal to the authority of Jesus Christ because he is the one who can forgive our sins because he paid the price for our sins. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, being seated at the right hand of a of a king in antiquity, that indicated that one acted with the authority, the power of the king. And so Christ... He acts on the authority of the Father. Power and honor belong to him. And I believe this is also, just like every other mentioning of uh, being seated at the right hand of God, uh, it's an allusion to Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. Yeah, that's uh, right. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So, Well, there's this last little verse here that uh, often gets overlooked about Christ uh, being now raised above these other things that are now subject to him, angels, authorities, powers. Uh, It's kind of strange, Nick. How are angels, authorities, and powers now subjected to Christ, and does that mean they weren't always subjected to Christ? What's going on there? Mm, Yeah, Uh, so in view here is Christ's ascension and exaltation, right? He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And so following the, the 40 days he was with his disciples after the resurrection, Christ was lifted up. He was taken out of sight by a cloud, 1 verse 9 of Acts says, to go back to heaven to intercede on our behalf, as the writer of Hebrews says in 7 verse 25 of Hebrews. He has gone. By the way, same word as went in verse 19, but that's for another time. Angels, authorities, and powers, they can, that, that, those, those terms can refer to spiritual bodies, both good and evil. All these powerful creatures, regardless of rank, have been subjected to Christ. That is, through his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, he brought them into submission, even those which were not willing, he still subjected them And so Christ, he is the cosmic sovereign ruler over every power. So to go back to Peter's question back in 3.13, now who is there to harm you? Peter has answered his own question by tracing the example of Christ clearly for his readers to see the exalted Lord. So summing up uh, Peter's overall argument, he exhorts his readers to follow Christ's example in suffering and to be encouraged that the Lord will deliver them from all enemies be they a flesh or spiritual, doesn't matter. Christ has the power. So <clears throat> that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think the angels, authorities, powers, that these are ranks of spiritual beings who had rule over the nations. Uh, I think these specific beings in mind were evil. Um, Christ, he stripped that ruling authority away from them at the cross. I get that from Colossians 2.15. And this is why he says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Um, He wasn't saying that before the cross. Now he's saying it after the cross. And so with the authority he now has, he sends the disciples to go make more disciples of this time, not the Jews, but all the nations. So Christ did not previously have that authority. He had to strip it from the other spiritual rulers uh, whom he defeated at the cross. Uh, Now we can be 
transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That's Colossians 1.13. So we were under the dominion of something, but it was darkness. It wasn't, it wasn't God. And now we're transferred into the rule of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so how did the other spiritual rulers get to rule over the nations in the first place? I think it was at the Tower of Babel, even though it doesn't say that in Genesis 11. That's the implication we get when we look at Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9, uh, especially the English Standard Version, which uses the Dead Sea Scrolls and then also the, the Septuagint. And so that kind of brings us into this um, elephant in the room, Nick. You know, we, we kind of skipped a big section here in what? chapter 3. What? We did? Three. Where? I don't... <laughs> oh, you mean verses 19 and 20, and actually yeah, part right. of 18, right? 18, that's 19, right. 20. So oh, we did, didn't we? Yeah. So, uh, well, there's a reason for that, folks. <laughs> we <laughs> we skipped those verses not because we don't know what it means or we don't want to talk about it or it's weird or it's unhelpful, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. The true scholar is not afraid of any passage or verse, and we will exegete this. It will be well upholstered. This mm. is happening, my friend. Because next time is a special episode dedicated only to the descent of Christ into Hades. Look out! Coming your way next time on Swordplay. It's coming. It's been a long time coming, too. I am eager. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be very exciting. I think it's a fascinating topic. And Nick and I, as always, will be doing some Swordplay. No, there will be fireworks. (laughs) Oh, that <laughs> sparks will fly. <laughs> okay, well, that's the end of chapter three. Now it's time to move on to our featured creature. Featured creature. And today's featured creature is the creature Devere. Nick, tell us what you think about Devere. Yeah, uh, so Devere is found in the Hebrew Bible dozens of times and is nearly universally translated as pestilence or plague. Uh, lexically, the Hebrew terms uh, Hebrew term means pestilence or plague. In fact, the fifth plague to hit Egypt is called a severe plague, and the Hebrew term there is dever, and it wipes out the Egyptian livestock, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. Exodus nine verse three tells us. But it is not this this uh, this term is not isolated to animals. Any kind of plague or pestilence which results in death is meant. One interesting note is that all but five times the term appears in the Hebrew Bible. It refers to pestilence sent by God, and in Psalm ninety-one verse three and also verse six, there is the promise of deliverance by God from plague and pestilence. Some see in Devere a reference to an ancient Near Eastern deity or perhaps a demon of destruction. I think Alex will talk about that at some length. But like we saw with Ketev before, such a view, in my opinion, is not necessary, especially when we consider the quotation of Hosea 13 and verse 14 in the New Testament. Paul quotes this text in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, leaning on, though not following exactly, the Septuagint. The Septuagint reads, uh, O death, where is your penalty? But Paul cites it, O death, where is your victory? And the word for penalty in the Septuagint, DK, being the translation, albeit somewhat questionable, uh, from the Septuagint there, it's the, it's the translation of ketev, uh, plagues in the Hebrew. 
And Paul, he reads victory, nikos. Uh, that's, that's how his reads, probably to rhetorically link this with what he said at the end, end of verse 54 and the Isaiah 25 verse 8 quotation. Death and Hades, as I've talked about before, these are definitely personification of death and the unseen realm of disembodied spirits, and that's actually common in Paul. However, Paul gives the interpretation of his quotation in verse 57. Our victory is in Christ Jesus. It is not that death's penalty is a demonic entity. Death loses, swallowed up in defeat by Christ. So, uh, that's what I see about Devere. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, so sometimes uh, these deities or demons are um, the same word in, as, as uh, like a personification like death. So like in the Canaanite pantheon, there was a real god named Death. His name was Mott. We'll probably talk about him another time. Uh, but it also, they, they knew what the word meant when it was talking about someone dying. And so, yeah, it's both. There, there's times where it's just a personification, and there are times where it's an actual being. And so, Devere is definitely an actual demon or evil spirit uh, known within the ancient Near East, worshipped in the ancient Near East. Uh, Devere appears in the Old Testament in the context of destroying spirits. The most fascinating of those passages is probably Psalm 78 and verse 49, where talking about all the plagues that God sent upon Egypt during the Exodus. Well, what does he call those plagues? He calls them a band of destroying angels. Psalm 78 verse 49. And then, of course, a similar idea is found in Ezekiel uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, where Yahweh calls forth his executioners, each with his destroying weapon in hand. And um, the Septuagint calls them the Avengers. And so these are intelligent, uh, often malevolent beings that God says, you can now destroy this place. And so Dever, that deity is mentioned in Ezekiel 14.21. Of course, it's translated as pestilence, but we should probably be seeing this as an actual demonic figure because Dever, just like Ketev, as we mentioned in a previous featured creature, they both keep close company with another demon called Reshef. So you go to Psalm 78 again, you'll see Reshef and Dever and Ketev, Habakkuk 3.5, same thing. And this follows the ancient Mesopotamian tradition according to which plague and pestilence are present in the entourage of the great god Marduk. That's the high god of the Babylonian pantheon. And so Dever and Ketev, they are also a uh, demonic duo sometimes. You see that in Psalm 91, verse 6, and Hosea 13, 14. The association of Dever with Reshef and Ketev and Death, which is Mot, and Sheol, would likely then make Dever an underworld deity. And one of the many names listed in Psalm 91, verses 5 through 6, includes Dever. In the text of Psalm 91, as we've seen in other featured creatures, that includes many other demons, deities, like the uh, night demon Lilith, and also um, an allusion perhaps to Reshef with the arrow that flies by day, and then also um, Ketev 
along with Devere. So I would liken Devere to the Black Horseman of Revelation chapter 6. The color black probably best applies to famine due to the awful imagery of one's skin turning black because of starvation. You get that from Lamentations 4.8 and 5.10. And interestingly, we find Devere always in the context of famine and sword in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So if you're looking up at the night sky and you see a white shooting star and then a red one and then a black one don't worry those are just the first three horsemen of the apocalypse Reshef, Ketev, and Dever death is on his way he likes to make a late entry for dramatic effect and that is the featured creature Dever <clears throat> well then Nick we have one extra segment here for our listeners we do it's the giving we season. We just want to keep giving. Yeah. So what, <laughs> what is this uh, extra gift that we've left for our listeners here? Yeah. So Christmas is just around the corner. And of course, old St. Nick will be coming around. But there is a tradition and our the, the swordplay research department is hard on the case. <laughs> the research department includes both Alex and myself. <laughs> We are uh, Only the we're best. doing our Only best to dig up. I don't, have you found the source of the tradition where um, about Saint Nicholas that we were talking about when he goes to um, Council, Council of Nicaea? Was it? Ni- yeah, Council of Nicaea. Yeah, and he punches he punches Arius in the face for his Nazi That's right. <laughs> That's right. Arius, the heretic, uh, holding to a, a diminished view of Christ and. Uh, well, old St. Nick didn't take too kindly to that and punched <laughs> Arius in the face. That's a tradition we're still working to. I haven't cite found our yeah, the exact source text on that. But uh, yeah, Nicholas, the Bishop of Mura, lived right around the, the 300s. Uh, he's a real historical person. And um, But I, if you just Google St. Nicholas memes, um, man, there's some good ones. There's, there's one that says uh, St. Nicholas came to give gifts to children and punch heretics in the face and then the bottom says and he just ran out of gifts <laughs> <laughs> it's in the spirit of that uh i guess somewhat questionable tradition <laughs> <laughs> that we have developed here at swordplay the saint nicholas award and 2020 is the first time we are awarding the saint nicholas award uh for the uh, heretic who needs to be punched in the face. <laughs> That's right. For for his his exploits, his or her exploits this year. And the 2020 St. Nicholas Award goes to former Liberty University President and Chancellor Jerry Falwell Jr. Back on August 2nd, a since-deleted photo appeared on Falwell Jr.'s Instagram. In the photo, Falwell has a drink in one hand. His other arm is around a woman who is not his wife, and both of their pants are undone. Falwell's pants not only unbuttoned, but also partially unzipped. The photo landed Falwell in hot water, even though he attempted to explain the whole thing as, it's a joke, she's pregnant, we're just comparing tummies, you know, it's a big joke. Uh-huh. I don't Alex... I don't know. Do you joke that way with people that aren't your wife? Because I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's not funny. 
<laughs> well, Falwell, other people found it unfunny too, and so Falwell was placed on indefinite leave of absence by University of Administration. I remember when that happened, telling uh, fellow staff members here, that means he's on the way out the door. And unfortunately, this was only the tip of the iceberg. Later in August, reports came out that Falwell's wife and the pool boy were having an affair, and that Falwell, uh, he would watch their sordid trysts from the corner of the room. Ick. Yikes. The evidence was too much and too damning. By the end of August, Falwell had resigned resigned, quote unquote, from his role as president and chancellor of Liberty University. You get to that point, you, it's a forced resignation. But anyway, it was the accumulation of just too many things, years in the making. This includes a convocation speech back in 2015 encouraging students to conceal carry guns so they could, quote, end Muslims. Because, you know, if not the gospel, then the pistol. Right, Alex? <laughs> wow. And just when you think that Jerry Falwell Jr. could not sink lower. Brace yourselves. He responds, hold my drink. In October, Falwell sued his former employer, Liberty University, for defamation of character and breach of contract. Are you kidding me, Jerry? Did we mention that uh, Falwell's a lawyer by training? So for all this, Jerry Falwell Jr. is our heretic in need of a good face punching and therefore is the recipient of the 2020 St. Nicholas Award. Merry Christmas, you <laughs> filthy animal. <laughs> oh, man, that's unfortunate, you know, is how the mighty have fallen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or how the wolves have been unclothed I mean, exposed <laughs> yeah that's right was he really mighty no i don't think so yeah yeah or at least if not a punch in the face with the right fist of fellowship then at least he needs his heart changed by god something like that yeah. i don't i don't know or maybe the laying on of some hands you know what i'm saying <laughs> maybe sometime by the way we developed this this award I, last year we did the Grinch of the Year award, and what was it James McDonald was our Grinch of the Year last year. But as Alex reminds me every time I bring up the Grinch award, the Grinch repented at the end. That's right. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's a, I know. He's a beaming example of of repentance. <laughs> <laughs> so we developed a Saint Nicholas award in order to talk about just people throughout the year, who have just been despicable examples of Christianity. And Falwell Jr. fit the bill this year, so... That's right. Get him out of here. That's right. No wolves allowed. Well, Nick, that's it for uh, this episode of Swordplay. Anything you want to remind our audience of? If you have a question, you can text it into the Swordplay text line at area code 316-24-SWORD. Area code 316-247-9673, 316-24-SWORD if you have a question. Also, uh, go into the Apple Podcast Store, and you'll find the podcast there. You can download the episodes to your particular device, take it with you on the go, leave a review. That'll help us boost uh, the, uh, the podcast in that respective place. Share it on social media if you are so inclined as well. 
Uh, also, if you have questions and don't want to text them, you can email them in to where, Alex? Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in to 1 Peter chapter 3. Join us next time as we examine Christ's descent into hell. Thanks for listening to Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on Scripture. 